And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So as I said, we are covering uh, the second table of the law today. And um, rest assured, I'm not going to do an in-depth explanation of each commandment. So just a, a little roadmap of where we're going. Uh, we're going to have three main points that I want to cover today. The first is that the first table of the law, uh, and I'm sorry, we're covering the first table of the law, not the second table. The first table of the law is greater in importance than the second table of the law. The second point today is that God is God. And as such, he is the Lord over how we worship. And the third is that God is to be worshiped as he commands and when he commands it. Now, I want to uh, underscore the first and third commandments are not less important than the second and fourth commandments, but they're a little bit more intuitive for us. So I'm going to spend most of my time today focusing on the second and the fourth commandments. Because at first they seem very straightforward, but there's a lot more kind of bubbling below the surface of what God intends with these commands than we uh, realize at times. So just a very brief recap of your previous, uh, of the previous sermon. The 10 commandments are composed of three parts. The first part is the preface, which we covered last time, which is verses one and two. The first table, which we'll cover today is, as I've said, verses three through 11. And then the second table, which we'll cover in a couple weeks here, is uh, verses 12 through 17. And roughly speaking, the first table regulates our relationship with God, and the second table regulates how we relate to other creatures, particularly with other image bearers. The Ten Commandments um, are really ten moral principles that God gave to people which are interwoven into the fabric of his creation. They reflect his holy nature and as such, they're binding on all people at all times. The moral law, which is what these 10 commandments summarize, has three uses. 
The first is to convict uh, those who are not yet converted of sin. The second is to restrain evil in society by giving governments a natural impulse to follow this moral law that's revealed through nature. And the third is to direct Christians in how to live holy and reflect God's nature. And lastly, from last, uh, the last time, it's important for us to remember that as Christians, we don't obey the law as a result of needing to obtain salvation or to merit God's favor. We obey because we're grateful to God that he has already saved us. The way that we talked about it last time is that our justification precedes our sanctification. So God rescues us from our sins and declares us to be righteous and holy before he causes us to be conformed to his image. Now, the first point that I want to make is that the, the first table of the law, our obligation to God, is more important than our obligation to our neighbors. Now, this is something that I think sometimes Christians hear and they sort of wonder if that's true. But in our um, theological heritage, going all the way back to things like the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist Confession, we see that both in the Westminster Shorter Catechism and in Keech's Catechism, which is the sort of the Baptist version of that, question 83 in the Westminster and question 90 in Keech's Catechism both read identically. It says, the question is, are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? And the answer is, some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. So to translate that out of 17th century language, some sins are worse than others, right? I think we all intuitively know this, even though our, our brains might tell us, well, all sin merits punishment from God, all sin has the wages of death and all of that is true. But the reality is if I tell a white lie at work, that's still a sin, but that's very different than if I murder my coworker, right? We recognize that. And so it's true, and this is part of why we sometimes bristle at the idea that our commitment to God is more important or the first table of the law is more important than the second table of the law. It's true because we can't separate the first and the second table. We recognize that if we fail to worship God, we've dishonored our parents. If we do not give God the time he has commanded of us, or if we withhold the financial obligation of bringing our offerings into the church and giving them up for God's use, that we are stealing from him. And also we recognize that this is uh, true, but we have to recognize that in reality, there never is a conflict between the first and the second table. So in some senses, this idea that the first table is more important than the second is kind of hypothetical. Because even though sometimes it feels like it, there's never going to be a time where honoring God or worshiping God properly causes us to sin against another individual. But in a fallen world, sometimes we have to make decisions and we don't make perfect decisions. And so we are given as a guide this concept that uh, the first table of the law is more important than the second table of the law. And to just demonstrate that, I don't want to belabor the point, but to demonstrate that, I want to just turn quickly to Matthew chapter 22. This is a passage that I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, I'm sure many of you have probably memorized this either in part or in whole. And this is the uh, passage that we turn to for um, our call to worship today. So starting in verse 34, 
and uh, we'll read through verse 40. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophet. Prophets. So we, we see here that Jesus is reaffirming this idea that these, these two commands, these two principles that he's given us are a summary of the entire moral law. So he's pointing at the same moral law, the same uh, moral principles that are woven into the fabric of creation because of who it is that God is and how he created. He's pointing to those and saying, this is the summary. And so we can take that and sort of by a transitive property, we can apply that to the Ten Commandments. And this is where we get the idea that there are two tables of the law. The first is to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And we'll go through more of the ins and outs of what loving your neighbor as yourself means with the, the second table of the law next, uh, next time. But it's clear that Jesus himself understands this division, that there is this priority of the, the first table over the second. So I don't want to skip over the first and third commandments entirely, but I do want to um, give you a brief overview of them. The first commandment is pretty straightforward, right? Don't have any other gods. Now, sometimes we read this and we read that phrase before me and we think, well, I can have... I can have other lowercase g gods. I mean, I don't think any of us consciously think that, but at times we live our lives as though we can have other sources of our religious affection. Maybe that's politics. Maybe we devote all of our energy to arguing politics online. Or maybe it is our particular hobbies. Maybe we find reasons to neglect our obligations to God because of other things that we want to do. I know for some people, it can be their jobs, right? They find ways to be absent from what God has commanded us to do in order to forward their careers. Or maybe it is your finances. Maybe you've determined in your mind that you could probably give a certain amount, but in order to uh, increase your savings account or hit that next target, you've decided to hold a little back, even though you probably could find a way to increase your giving. Now, all of those things are good things. Right? None of those things in themselves are bad things. They only become bad things when we have somehow uh, used them as a subordinate God. So even if we don't elevate them above God, but instead just make them a competing God, we're still violating this commandment. The third commandment, I think we often look at and think, well, this just means don't swear, right? This just means don't say OMG. But when we start to look at how the scripture actually talks about this, we start to see uh, that this is a bit deeper, right? All of us today come into the Lord's house and we call ourselves Christians. We bear the name of our God when we identify ourselves with him. Israel did the same thing, right? The, the name of Israel, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. We're all familiar with that passage. Well, Israel also bore the name of God. And what he's saying here is that if you take up that name, if you take that name in vain, 
meaning that you take the name, but you do not take all of the blessings and the obligations that come with it, then you have dishonored God and he will not hold you guiltless. Now, this should not be read as a, some sort of um, rejection of the idea that we are preserved in our faith in Christ, that somehow those who are saved could eventually be lost. This is, this is referring to people in large part who claim the name of Jesus, but don't actually follow him with their lives and haven't actually trusted them with, his salva- with their salvation. And this reminds me, you know, sometimes it's good to have an illustration. I, I used to work for Geek Squad and Geek Squad's branding is not quite what it used to be. They've stepped away from their real aggressive branding campaigns. But when I worked for Geek Squad, the brand was everything, right? If my tie tack was an inch too low or an inch too high, I would have someone coming up to me and adjusting it for me. If my shirt was wrinkled, I was frequently told to go open up an iron in the appliance department and go iron my shirt. Right. If I called the little car they drove around a geek bo- you know, a geek car or a Beetle, I was corrected and told, no, it's a geek mobile. So the reason for that was because there were 100 companies that were doing tech support. There were 1,000 companies that were doing tech support. But what was unique about Geek Squad was its name and its image. And so if I, as a person bearing that image and bearing that name, dishonored it, then I was dishonoring the whole thing. Right. You see similar ideas in uh, the military or in the police. Uh, you see similar ideas in families. Right? We're not that kind of people. Don't, don't besmirch the family name. So this too is a somewhat intuitive commandment for us. It of course involves things like not using the Lord's actual name in vain. Right? We all know exactly what those, those phrases are. I would challenge you a little bit. There's an old Scottish concept called a minced oath, right? Where do we think the phrase Jesum comes from when we exclaim it? Or Jiminy Cricket. Gosh, where do we think those phrases come from? So I'll let you wrestle with the implications of that, right? I'm not here to uh, be the Holy Spirit in your life. But sometimes fulfilling this commandment means we have to think a little bit deeper about what our words say to the people around us and what, what messages that communicates. So now that we've kind of passed by those, I want to move on to the second commandment because this is one that feels very alien to us, right? I don't, I certainly hope none of us have little, you know, golden statues that we burn incense to or sacrifice animals to in our houses or backyards. I certainly hope that none of us do. If, if you do, then you probably should talk to pastor when he's back next week, right? But this really goes a lot deeper than that. The second commandment is not just a prohibition on carved images, but for Israel, it was understood as a prohibition against worshiping in any ways that God had not commanded. This particular instance was codified in sort of their most likely temptation to worship in a way God had not commanded in the form of using an image, an unauthorized image. But it extends to several other, uh, several other kinds of things we might do. Theologically speaking, this principle is called the regulative principle of worship. And it's contrasted to what's called the normative or normative principle of worship. And roughly speaking, the regulative principle of worship says we are not allowed to invent our own manner or means of worship and unless we are commanded to do it in worship, 
we are forbidden to do it in worship. The normative principle, roughly speaking, would be unless God forbids it in worship, then we are free to do it in worship, right? And our theological heritage understands the Bible as teaching the former. You're going to run into lots of Christians that believe the latter, and it's not something that's worth um, getting into aggressive discussions and severing friendships and spiritual fellowship for. But it is part of the reason why we are not able to necessarily attend some churches in worship. There are churches that I'm sure you would go to where you may not feel comfortable because of the things they're doing in worship, right? So I want to root this in scripture because this is, as I said, it's a little bit of a different understanding than some of us may be used to. So turn with me over to um, Deuteronomy 4.15, and we're going to read uh, 15 through 19. So Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and 4... Verses 15. Now, Deuteronomy, as you know, is the so-called second giving of the law. That's what the word Deuteronomy means. And this is uh, Moses delivering sort of his final farewell sermon to the people of Israel. He's been told by God, it's been revealed to him that he will not enter the promised land, that Joshua will take over the mantle of leadership for him. And the Israelites are preparing to enter into the promised land. And so he reminds them of the law that was given on Sinai um, that they were not present to receive. Remember, this is the generation that was born in the wilderness for the most part or was too young to remember the Exodus. So they weren't aware of the giving of the Ten Commandments. So doubtlessly, some of those things had been handed down to them from their parents. But also we recognize that the uh, Exodus generation was not always the most faithful and was not always super good at passing on the faith. So starting in verse 15, Moses says, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or a female, the likeness of any animal that is on earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Right? So he's repeating this command not to create images for the purpose of worship. And then he says, and beware lest you raise your eyes to the heaven. And when you see the sun and moon and stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord, your God has allotted to all the peoples under the heavens. So the point of this verse is that there are things that we can do that may seem smart. How many people have, uh, have uh, heard, well, my church is nature right? I go out by the ocean in the morning and I watch the sunrise and that really helps me worship. Well, at what point are you worshiping the sun as it rises instead of the one who rises the sun? At what point are you worshiping the solitude of nature and the quietness instead of the one who created that nature and quietness? Well, the very honest answer is that if you have not been commanded to do it, then in large part, you're already worshiping something other than what God has revealed. Turn quickly to Leviticus uh, 10 verses 1 through 3. So just back a little ways. Leviticus 10 verses 1 through 3. Now we believe uh, as Protestant evangelicals that all of the words of scripture are, are inspired, not just the phrases or the concepts, but the words 
and the grammar itself. We call this the grammatical historical method of interpretation. And so when you look at Leviticus 10, one through three, it reads, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So the scene here is Nadab and Abihu, who are two of the first priests of the people of Israel. Right, Aaron, their father, is the high priest, and then there are Aaron has several sons, and these two are, are two of them. So they've been given certain commands and responsibilities, and one of them is to offer incense. Now, some of your translations probably say that they offered strange fire. That it's a word that we don't fully understand, but the, the concept in Hebrew is that they offered fire that was not in conformity with the fire that God had commanded. What exactly that means, I will leave to the uh, Hebrew scholars and the Old Testament scholars, but we understand the idea that God is commanding them to do one thing and they took it upon themselves to do something different. And if we're not careful when we read this and we go too fast, we read, uh, we, we interpret this to say, he offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which God had commanded them not to do. Right? That would be the regulative principle or the, the normative principle. God commanded them not to offer unauthorized fire, and they did, so he punished them. But when we actually observe the way that the Bible is written and the Hebrew structure, it's not that they offered fire which he had commanded them not to do. They offered fire that he had not commanded them to. The very word unauthorized is a passive word. It means that it does not bear the quality of being authorized. Versus forbidden, which is an active word, means that someone is actively forbidden it. It's kind of like if you, um, if you, you know, in, in different states have different laws about uh, trespassing. But the general idea is that if it's private property and you've not been given permission to be on it, then you should not be on it. That's trespassing. Now, it gets more acute if the owner communicates to you that they do not wish you to be there. But the assumption is that if you're not authorized, then you are forbidden. And then just to prove that this is not exclusively a Old Testament phenomena, turn all the way over to the book of Colossians. We're going to go to Colossians 2, and we're going to read verses 6, 16 through 23. I can find it myself, then we can get started. Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a, a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, uh, the worship of angels going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch 
referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping indulgence of the flesh. Now, the, the phrase to key in here on is in this translation, it says promoting self-made religion. Uh, in the Greek, it's literally will worship. It's worship according to your own desires, as opposed to the implied statement is as opposed to the desires of God. What was going on in Colossae is that there were Jews who were continuing to demand that uh, converts obey certain festivals, that they still observe certain dietary laws, and that they still hold the seventh day Jewish Sabbath. And so Paul is saying, don't let anyone hold you accountable to that. Don't let anyone judge you because those things were a shadow pointing to Jesus. And now that the substance has come, now that Jesus has come, we no longer fulfill the shadow. It's sometimes a little bit fun when you have a movie you really like to go back and watch the trailer, right? To sort of see, it's funny, I looked up a trailer of a movie that I just really loved in like the 90s. The trailer was so terrible. But I could probably watch that movie, right? Going back to the shadow is like watching the trailer and refusing to watch the movie and thinking that you're really getting the whole effect. I mean, nowadays, the trailer doesn't even actually tell you anything about the movie. They cut it in ways that actually obscures what's going on. And what was happening in Colossae is people were being told, no, you have to watch the trailer. If you want the movie, you have to watch the trailer. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Don't, don't do that. Don't invent ways to worship that are not commanded, right? Don't add regulations. Don't add things like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are human precepts and teachings. And they may seem like they make sense. Some of the, some of the additions to worship that we, we make, I mean, we, the whole Christian church, not just necessarily us, but that the Christian church makes seem to make sense sometimes, right? Sometimes really aggressive rock music seems like it's going to attract a crowd that is going to bring in the young people, quote unquote. But all of the studies have actually shown that the churches that are doing the best with the newer generations with millennials and Gen Zers are the ones that have held to the Bible and have held to the confirmed teachings. Because to be honest with you, and this is a little bit of a pragmatic argument, the world does it better than us in terms of rock shows and special events and that kind of stuff. They can cook better meals. Usually they have more resources to have more impressive light shows. But what they don't have is the God commanded worship that draws us into the presence of the living God, the creator of the universe. So I want to turn now to the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment is a moral requirement that God's people devote to him the appropriate times that he has demanded of his people. Most explicitly is the Sabbath itself, which in the Old Testament was the seventh day. We'll talk about why that was. And now in the New Testament era, in the New Covenant, we worship on the first day of the week instead of the seventh. Now, it's important to talk about specifics, right? What can you do and can't you do on the Sabbath? Sometimes it feels a little bit like, uh, like the Pharisees saying you can't walk more than uh, a half a mile, a Sabbath's journey. And you can certainly go too far with this. That's not what I want to do today. 
right? We could do that. It's not a bad thing to do. It's important. There are plenty of good sermons out there discussing and exploring what we're allowed to do, what is a violation of the Sabbath, what's not. But instead, what I want to talk about is what the Sabbath is really about. What's the point of this commandment? Why is it that we should follow it? Why is it that God gave it to us as a gift? So has anyone ever thought about why the Sabbath was on Saturday, on the seventh day for the Jewish people? Has that ever been a topic of discussion in your mind? Our passage today gives one reason, and then the similar parallel passage in Deuteronomy seems to give a different reason. Have we ever wondered why that is, what that means? Right, nothing in scripture is an accident, and, and scripture doesn't contradict itself. And so the fact that one passage refers to one thing as the reason for the seventh day Sabbath, and one passage refers to another thing, means that both of those things are the reason for the seventh day Sabbath. So turn back to um, Exodus 20, and we're just going to take a look at uh, verses 4 through 6. I'm not going to read uh, the whole thing. I'm just going to call your attention to a couple features here. In the Old Testament, the people of God reflected on two chief things that uh, helped them identify who God was and who God was to them. Right? You, you commonly see that God is the creator of heaven and earth, and he is the Lord of the Exodus, or sometimes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So in Exodus 4, 6, God sets apart the Sabbath, and the reason for it says, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So in Exodus, God points to the fact that he is the creator, that he is the one who made all of these things which are a blessing for his people. It looked forward to his new creation in the entering of the promised land, which was seen as a sort of creation. Um, it, it's an interesting word study, but the, the language that's used of the wilderness is very similar and in some cases identical to the language that's used uh, in Genesis 1 when it says the world, world was formless and without void. So when they leave Egypt, they're going into basically an uncreated, unusable, unordered space. That's what the phrase means. And then when they come into the promised land, they're entering into a created, ordered, fruitful place for them to inhabit. And so the Ten Commandments here points to God's provision as creator as part of why they are to celebrate on the seventh day, which was the same day that the Lord finished that work and rested. You don't need to turn there, but I'm going to read uh, briefly from Deuteronomy chapter 5. And this is the other giving of the Ten Commandments. Remember, as we said, this is as the people of Israel, the, the second generation comes into the promised land. They're sort of getting a refresher course on uh, the moral law and God's covenant. And starting in verse uh, 12, he says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So what we see here is that now this wilderness generation, 
which ironically had not, most of them had not been slaves in Egypt, are being told to remember that they collectively as a people were slaves and that God redeemed them out of that. And so the two purposes of the Sabbath are to point to what Israel considered to be the chief acts of salvation and redemption in the old covenant. That God created this land, that he would bring them into this ordered created land in the promised land of Canaan, ironically, I guess, and that he saved them from Egypt. So it's about salvation. It's about their coming hope, their future hope of this promised land. And both of these things, we don't have explicit statement on, um, on the um, Exodus, uh, but it was on the Passover, which then was done on the Sabbath. So it's a pretty good bet that they left on the Sabbath. This is a reference to the seventh day. So they mark off which day they are to worship in relation to the day that the redemptive acts occurred, the seventh day of the week. So now we have to ask the question, well, why did, why did this change for Christians? Sometimes you hear that it didn't. Sometimes you hear that all of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament except for the Fourth Commandment. And I'm, I'm hopefully going to prove to you that that's not the case today. But why did Christians in the first century stop worshiping on the seventh day and begin worshiping on the first day? So in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, 8 through 10, you can turn there if you'd like, but I'll uh, read that. The author here, um, let's just call him not Paul. Uh, he, he is sort of reflecting, right? He's talking to people who are thinking about leaving the Christian religion. And he's, he's thinking about, uh, he's trying to convince them not to do that, to not to go back to being Jewish believers, not to abandon Christianity for Judaism. And in verse eight, he says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken on of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did. Right, so this, the, the, first, the seventh day Sabbath in the Jewish old covenant pointed to the entering of the promised land. But our author here tells us that wasn't the promised rest. That itself was just pointing forward to the ultimate promised rest. And then he goes on through the rest of the book to prove that that's Jesus. So we moved the Christian Sabbath to the first day of the week to reflect our great act of redemption, not our great act of redemption, but God's great act in redeeming us, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We gather forward to point towards the consummation of this hope, just as the Israelites did. Their consummation of their hope was entering into the promised land. And so they gathered on the seventh day to reflect that, we gather on the day that Christ was raised from the dead to point forward to our final Sabbath rest when we enter into that last day. I won't go there, but just think about what it is that we say, what we, we are taught when we take communion. What do we do with it? Well, we eat and we drink, but we proclaim the Lord's death when? Until he comes. So that act of worship is to point us forward to, to call our minds forward to the final redemption in Christ. I'm going to read quickly here, apart from our, a, a passage from our um, meditation today. This is Hebrews 10, and it's uh, verse 19 through 25. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, what day is the author referencing? The day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord, when we enter into our Sabbath rest. This word for gather is only used in one other place in the New Testament. It's uh, in 2 Thessalonians 2.1, and it says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. So this word for gathering that it, Paul uses in Thessalonians is referencing to this final gathering, this final collection assembly of God's people. It's not too much of a stretch in logic to think that that's what he's referring to here, that this is also a gathering that points forward. So when we gather together, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We gather as his people in anticipation of that final hope of our gathering, being gathered together in Christ on the last day. So what? So what do we do with this? Now, I'm not here to tell you that if you miss church on a Sunday, that you are, are somehow a terrible sinner, right? That's not, that's not true. There are all sorts of reasons why a person may not be here. But we have to ask ourselves a question. Does the pattern of our life and how we relate to our obligations to gather together on the Sabbath reflect a genuine hope and a genuine commitment to proclaiming day in and day out, week in and week out, that we have hope that the Lord is coming back? Or does the pattern of our life and the pattern of our Sabbath gathering point to a fact that we don't think that the Lord coming back is really that big of a deal? Now, we have been a church in COVID exile for some time now, right? This is what, maybe the fifth week that we're back? So this is a chance for us to reset our Sabbath expectations or our Sabbath proclamation. It's a chance for us to recommit to ourselves that we have a full assurance of the hope of the coming day of the Lord, that we have a full assurance of the coming glory of our Lord, that he will gather us together, not just the saints in this room, but the saints through all ages, the saints through all of the globe. Do we neglect that gathering together? Because if we do, we tell the world that we don't think that the coming gathering is going to happen because we don't bother with the current gathering. Let's pray. Father, you are the Lord of the Sabbath and your son Jesus Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath and your Holy Spirit is the Lord of the Sabbath. And you have given that Sabbath and you created that Sabbath for the blessing of man, not man for the blessing of the Sabbath. Lord, we don't make the Sabbath holy by our adherence or by our attendance, but we remember the Sabbath in order to keep it holy. It has been set aside for us and we remember the Sabbath by continuing to set it aside in our lives. So Lord, as we worship with a closing song, as we go from this place to the rest of the world, let this day, let this gathering be a proclamation of the death and resurrection of your son and a statement of the hope that we have in him that he is returning to claim his bride. We pray this in his name and in the power of the spirit. 
Amen.